It's May 11th, 2023. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 263 of Rook. What is more important than the freedom to think? I'm Gian Gilmeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam What is more fundamental than the freedom to think? If the global attention to what is going on in Iran has become subdued, let's not mistake that for atrocities and human rights violations being any less crude. Now let's be clear, your life can be taken away for simply having a belief, a thought, an idea that isn't sanctioned by the government. What is more important than the freedom to think? Oh, this isn't new. Those of you around the world who are familiar with this theocracy will be suggesting that this is not a surprise, but nor is it something we should ever normalize. Consider how insane this is in the 21st century. Two men were executed this week because they didn't believe in God or the right God. They were killed for exercising their ability to think. Their lives were taken away because they refused the Islamic drink. Of all the anti-democratic madness we've seen over the last 45 years in the country of our ancestry, corruption, dysfunction, autocratic rule, the suppression of women, clothing laws, cultural bans, social repression, and the denial of dissent and assembly? Is there anything more insane than being killed for holding the wrong belief about whether there is a God? What is more fundamental than the freedom to think? Yusef Merdad was a father of three. He's now dead. Sadrullah Fazadizadeh was the caretaker of his mother. He's now in a grave instead. They were originally arrested in 2020 for blasphemy for a telegram channel that criticized superstition and religion. Their families say their confessions were extracted under duress. They were held in solitary, denied family visits and phone calls. And this week, as the eyes of the world have shifted away from Iran, they were killed as part of a macabre new tradition. It's outrageous. These men didn't act out violently or steal or extort or harm anyone else. They made the mistake of suggesting that they were atheists. They died for having beliefs. Is there anything more important than the freedom to think? We live in a global cultural moment where opinions are under attack in various forms. Conform or be cast out is what we are increasingly seeing in social media. Toe the cultural party line or be canceled and resign. But in Iran, it is, of course, next level. Think the wrong thing and we'll cut you with a knife. Don't subscribe to our religion and we'll forcibly take your life. And this has been the case for over the last 45 years, a period that has seen people of different religions and beliefs flee the country that was once more diverse and welcoming. And this week, it could not be more plain. The government in power only grows more vicious and more insane. What is more fundamental than the freedom to think? Here's a hint, nothing. Here's hoping one day soon, Iran returns from the break. Coming up, a new episode of Rook featuring Dr. Mitra Mohammad Zadeh on the importance and primacy of grieving and Ty Mosbach-Bagni on his remarkable story of resilience, plus the Rook Roundup with Pega. This is Rook, episode 263, Grief and Recovery.
welcome here. <laughs> We're welcome. Here we are in the Rook Studio. Smart Pega is with me. Hello. Uh, first time I've done an essay in a, a, a few in a weeks. While. Yeah, but it was wonderful. Thank you. I really enjoyed that, actually. I don't know if there's anything wonderful about Well, no, I mean, the essay the, was the, wonderful. Thank and you. I really enjoyed it and really made you think. The freedom to think. The freedom to yeah. think. That's right. Uh, I, I feel like the freedom to think. Can you imagine that we keep thinking we're progressing? Mm-hmm. You know, our default, I believe, as, as human beings is to think that over time we get better. We yeah. learn, we, we grow as a, as a species. And we're now in the 21st century. And what is under attack is in so many different ways and mm-hmm. in different, you know, even in the, in the West, I would argue in some ways, the ability to just have a belief. Yes. And this week, people being killed for in Iran for um, suggesting they don't believe in God. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, that, and that's why I was saying your, your essay really made me think about that. It made me question, you know, exactly that. And I guess, again, I know some of you people out there are going, well, of course, you know. <laughs> Duh, we know this, like mm-hmm. Iran, you know, this is a, I mean, it's a religious state and, you know, it's, if you do something blasphemous, then this is the result. But the point is we have to remember how insane this is, exactly. right? That it's, that it's not normal. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't ever be normal. It becomes normalized because people just get so tired of it after mm-hmm. a while that what can we say? What can we do? It's the reality to get bad, all of that stuff, right? Here we are starting off the show on a... Just jumping in. Jumping right in. <laughs> Hope you're doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Pega Taimaz Bog Bogboni. Bogboni, right? Yeah. Bogboni. Taimo thank you, Savvy Roham. <laughs> Taimaz Bogboni is coming up in the Rook studio later in the show. Somebody mm-hmm. I've been aware of and and aware of his story for many years in fact uh, um an athlete uh, a rapper now mm-hmm. but uh he's still only in his early 20s but he's uh, he's got such a story i can't believe his story i mean it's unbelievable today's today's episode is is, is, is about resilience mm-hmm. i mean the whole show regularly seems to be about <laughs> resilience the plight of the of persian people but but time Oz certainly is an extraordinary example of resilience in mm-hmm. that he has he was going he was on course to be a professional football player soccer player right. really really talented young soccer player when he was mm-hmm. a kid um and then he gets cancer um leukemia mm-hmm. then he gets cancer again wow. then he gets cancer a third time uh and is told that about the age of 14 that there's no point even you know uh having any, any more medical treatment mm-hmm. because his days are numbered um, based on his own strength and belief and his mom as well, he fights for his life and overcomes it. About, uh, about two or three years ago, he actually came out of a wheelchair. He's now wow. um, walking and strong and talking and, and, uh, and rapping. <laughs> and um, so Tai Maz Bagbani, the Iranian-Canadian, uh, will be joining us here in the Rook studio. Before that, mm-hmm. in just a little bit, Mitra Mohammad Zadeh. She is a grief recovery specialist, um, and she's going to join me here on the importance of, of grieving, on how we grieve, the process, why it's important to recognize that we need to grieve, mm-hmm. not just personally in terms of all the personal loss that Iranians uh, have felt for a number of reasons mm-hmm. and that we all feel in our, in our everyday lives, you sure. know, um, losing a family member, going through a terrible breakup, losing our job, having to move from another country, whatever. But... 
the grief that we are now experiencing globally as an Iranian community mm -hmm. in weeks like this where if you even want to pay attention to the news because sometimes people just want to turn it off yeah. you're dealing with people being executed and killed and and that that grieving process how we do that both individually and and collectively Mitra Mohammad Zadeh is here to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I'm actually so excited to hear her speak about that because I feel like also culturally we have a weird relationship with grief. Like, I I'm sure it'll be interesting to hear her insight on it. What do you it. think our relationship is with grief? I don't know. Culturally? I mean, I think we pretend like it doesn't exist until it absolutely almost slaps us in the face. Like, yeah. you know, I feel like, and you know, even on a personal experience, it's not something that you ever think about or talk about within the upbringing of being yeah. Iranian, I almost feel yeah. like. And then, but it's inevitable. I mean, it's one of those things that... Much like most of our emotions mm -hmm. and and <laughs> personal <laughs> subjects, I, I feel like it's swept under the rug. I feel like yeah, it's suppressed exactly. culturally, like, in and exactly. don't talk about this, exactly. you know. And I think we're terrible at grieving. I think, I suspect she's going to say that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I probably know she is because I've been researching her ideas. But we also have these weird rituals around it too, like you know we're supposed to emote and cry and wail mm. at funerals but but then you know we've got our own version of stiff upper lip don't uh, right. you know look tough and believe in the future and uh, I, I don't know i if, if maybe one of the fringe positives of the last 8 months has been the idea that people have been open about how they've been crying how about how they've been mourning yeah. uh, how they've been expressing sadness or grief about what iran is what iran has been in the last 45 years mm -hmm. uh, the plight of those kids who've been killed all of that i mean maybe that's the dialogue around it especially i think has been the silver lining i guess to, to be able to actually have those conversations because definitely prior to this i don't think we did i still don't know how i still think there's so much trauma mm -hmm. if there wasn't already trauma Revolution, oh, war, immigration, now. whatever. Now, I mean, yeah. and and as Solmaz Bakir was saying last week, the trauma of unmet expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, all the euphoria of October and November. Yes, we're going to win. Exactly. Uh, the, the regime is going to be gone in a few weeks, which was perhaps always unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Now, it's the trauma of oh, uh, shit. Nothing. You know, the, uh, we're still back to square one. Yeah. We're not really back to square one, but in the eyes of some folks. It's so funny that you say that. I was talking to a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in weeks, and um, and he was saying, oh, you know, how are things with Rook? I haven't caught the last few episodes, things like that. And I said, okay, you know, things are great. We're, you know, still going strong and talking about it. And we started talking about the revolution. And then all of a sudden he just said, you know, I'm so done with it. I, I just feel so drained yeah. and so depressed and defeated and, you know, all these emotions of just... I don't know, hurt, Listen, trauma, I'll be honest, like you said. I, I, even writing today's essay and mm -hmm. getting preparing to do it, I was thinking, you know, should I do this? Because yeah. I know that we've heard from people in our audience, okay, that's enough, you know, mm -hmm. let's move on. We're really tired of the talk about, you know, our problems, <laughs> which, are, which are, it's put in the category of being political, but mm -hmm. I, I don't actually think this doesn't fall in the category of, of political organized politics or parties or opposition leaders or any of that for me this is about just talking about man you know uh people getting executed and human yeah. rights we how are we supposed to ignore that exactly you know? um but yeah how, how are you doing otherwise uh, after this conversation yeah. you were fine <laughs> i was fine yeah, yeah. um you know I, I mean i think it's still the same thing we've been saying for months there's ups and downs there's did you watch the 
King Charles coronation? <laughs> I didn't watch it. Yeah. Um, I definitely saw highlights and I read. Why didn't about you watch it. it? Why didn't you? You weren't excited to get up early in Toronto no, time. And I mean, I say I didn't watch it, but I was forced to hear it because my sister was up whatever time oh, she it was. She was she was into it. the. Yeah, she was watching it. My sister you know, very much into it. Uh, I don't know, man. I've I've lived with the uh, monarchy all of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, as a first, I was a little little kid. There, I, I the, the Shaw. The, you right. know, we had a, a king and then the queen. I've always had. I was born in England, right. so I had the queen right. and then came to Canada, and she's on our money and, um, and I never really, at least in the British context, uh, I never really saw the point of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of like. You know, when I by the time I was a cool, quote unquote, cool teenager and and in university, I was like, why do we need this, you know, institution? Mm-hmm. And we should. But on the other hand, I had a soft spot. You know, I I, I thought the queen, Queen Elizabeth, the yes. second acquitted herself very admirably, mm-hmm. given what, you know, the pressures of the gig for 100 years. You know, she was and I, I mourned that I was there at the yeah. when the queen died. I went and visited the the, the what Buckingham Palace. Palace, yeah. By the way, a week or two before Massa, I mean, he was killed. Yes. Remember that that was the big news was the death of the queen. And then the Iranian uprising, unrelated, mm-hmm. started. But, you know, I watched The Crown. I've met Will and Kate when I hosted Canada Day events and they were there. And so um, Charles seems like a decent dude overall, but I couldn't. I couldn't. Wa- I couldn't. I, I watched five minutes of this and I was just like, oh, you've got to be kidding. It's kidding. I would kill me to watch. You'd have to. <laughs> I don't know if you could pay me to watch this. Yeah, there was one thing. You know, I mean, I didn't watch it, so I don't know. I'm not saying this firsthand experience of watching it or anything like that. But from everything that I read, there was all of this talk, um, an attempt to incorporate like diversity and inclusion and sustainability. Right. The new royal and, like, family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this modern yeah. take on the monarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, at first glance, you're kind of thinking, you're like, okay, well maybe that's not such a bad thing. But then yeah. you look into it and then you realize that it's just reduced to simple symbolism and that's Feels it. manufactured. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the first time that there was a diverse ceremony. Now, to be fair, the last coronation was in 1953. So you would imagine right, right. that, you know, this is obviously going yeah. to be a little bit more diverse and modern. But there was religious leaders from different faiths. There yeah. were, um, you know, the clothing they chose was sustainable clothing, like all of these things. But at the core of it, it's still... King Charles and Camilla uh, sitting up there on their throne with the garish and outfits and the yeah. hats or the, the I don't know what sorry what do you call that crown crowns yeah, yeah. I you know it doesn't uh, it's not to me it's not it doesn't I feel bad because I know for some people this is really important mm-hmm. you know and uh, back in England there's a real pride in some yeah. corners you know but to me this this is not a good example of why there should be monarchy in the world. It's like, <laughs> what is all this money going to to put on this this ceremony for exactly. for what you know? And and again with the queen, I kind of thought, well, she's an institution. She's been there for a century. Right. You know, she's the through line of British life. All of this. She's a, but now it's it's Charles, and it just it's like really what? Not as so, well I received. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to feel. Are you feeling back to being Iranian? Mm-hmm. It's. I, I was also feeling again with the the essay today and stuff with the executions and uh, there's this tension between quote unquote moving on with life, mm-hmm. you know, as so many people are doing or suggesting right. we do, and wanting to address and scream about what's going on in Iran. I mean, one of the things that we have to 
we have to be let's I mean as we segue into the Rook Roundup here right. I'm going to ask you yeah, no, you've got a couple of items you yeah. want to talk about. I assume one of them is the execution. Absolutely, yeah. It's weird because the things that, and I tried to intimate this in the in my essay just now, but the things that we were outraged about, mm-hmm. like we were calling on the world to, and, and I sh- to be fair, there are still people doing this. Right. There are even opposition leaders, whatever, out there every day trying to, you know. But the things that we were so outraged about four or five months ago and you know this is desperate and we need our governments to talk about this and we we need to be in the streets those things are still happening or worse and they're not as outraged well i i'm sure people are outraged mm-hmm. in their hearts well, collectively but, but we're not not, as not in yeah. terms of expressing it yeah. and, and maybe it's because of this fucking disillusion of the so-called opposition leaders mm-hmm. and all the you know this person unfollowed this person on Instagram all that nonsense you know I, I don't know if that has to do with cutting it off at the knees but in terms of the diaspora and again full respect to those people who are still going out to the marches and still people but the stuff's still going on in your own mm-hmm. and, and this is you, you got it you, you think wow this is exactly what they wanted the regime was like well let's just wait long enough you know the the people get tired and then That's you know exactly. of, of protesting or having an issue and then we'll will you know prosecute the kind of crackdown that we've always mm-hmm. knew known we were going to terrify the the shit out of everybody kill our anybody who's a dissenter i mean it's 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 morose so okay so what what do you have for the roundup in terms of the the executions well i mean as you mentioned you know we we obviously talked about those two young men who were executed yusuf mehran and sadrullah fazelizare who were executed on the 8th of may so just a couple days ago three days ago three days ago yeah and this came actually after just days after the execution of habib chab on may 6th who was the former leader of the Arab struggle movement for the liberation of Ahwaz. Um, So, I mean, it's evident that the Islamic Republic is on this almost killing spree. Mm. I mean, not that they haven't been before, but in the form of executions, one after another, we've been seeing this. Um, But I don't, but I want to take a moment and actually not focus on the executions themselves, but instead focus on, I guess, a byproduct of what's been happening as a result of these executions, which is a new social media campaign that's been launched Mm. on Twitter. So I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a hashtag um, that's been kind of spreading and, and actually gone pretty viral over the last little while. Um, the English translation being we are all together or in Farsi Mohammed Baham Hassim has been retweeted about 300,000 times and this is just up until mid-Wednesday. Nice. Um, it's still, yeah. you know, kind of making its rounds. What is and, it and a reference to, Mohammed? we are all together? In, so in the concept is um, that we are all together against the regime and mm. calling for an end to these atrocities, including the executions and in particular the executions and this new killing spree that the Islamic Republic is on. So, you know, what you were saying about that, that sense of feeling defeated, I think something like this has sparked that sense of, Mm. I don't want to call it hope, but I mean, this, the sense of unity maybe again, hopefully. Yeah. So, I mean, as horrible. A renewed energy for dissent. Yes, exactly. So as horrible as, as these executions are and have been, um, you know, maybe, that's the silver lining. By the way, I was talking to somebody last night. We have to also remember that a lot of what the regime has done cumulatively over the last few months, like like we've said, we've talked about this on, on Rook. I was talking to somebody who has a large following in, mm-hmm. in, in social media, and they were saying like well over 
you know, I don't know, some crazy figure, ninety percent of of their posts and things like that, people in Iran cannot see. Wow. Um, like there's that that continued suppression mm-hmm. of I mean, as we speak right now, we know that for a lot of folks in Iran, there if you're listening to us and we have a big audience in Iran, mm-hmm. it's because you have a VPN or you've yes. figured out some way around things. Um, and there's been more crackdowns on some of the major VPNs mm-hmm. and things like that. So so there's all kinds of things at work that are besides the divisions yes. that maybe are also fostered by uh, the Iranian government mm-hmm. uh, uh, that are suppressing uh, things. But that is energizing to mm-hmm. hear about, uh, I mean, hashtag campaigns or hashtag campaigns yeah. what, for what they're worth, but, but it's energizing to hear about that. The other thing that I thought was energizing, that I, I, I presume you're gonna talk about is the news out of Sweden the last yes, few days. exactly. Which is that finally, it seems that uh, a Western government has taken upon itself to to really make a statement mm-hmm. uh, um, in terms of uh, a uh, passing a, an edict, a law around addressing the IRGC. So, t- tell us what happened in Sweden. Yeah. So, the Swedish Parliament voted in favor of designating the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. Um, unanimously actually on May 10th so just yesterday um, the vote came in at 349 to 0 um, so that was it was incredible to see that the efforts of you know um, so many Iranians who have been lobbying for this um, finally paid off and it's actually going to be or I think it is an incredible first step for uh, the rest of the international community because this is going to be seen as you know a move by a country like Sweden it will have direct impact on other countries in Europe and everywhere else in the world. So, um, you know, we've seen lobby efforts from um, Iranians in the diaspora. We've seen Bahid Behishti. We've seen Ali Reza Akhundi, who's actually a Swedish politician and um, one of the individuals who had kind of been at the forefront of this. So definitely it was amazing to see this This is still something that Canada hasn't done. Exactly. Right? And and the big call for European countries to do this, the, mm-hmm. the hunger strike in the UK is, was to get the UK to be the first chip to fall to to put the IRGC on the terrorist list. So this is, um, it's pretty major news. And, and uh, I thought it was really heartening, you know, that whatever we, we think in terms of the, the momentum of, uh, uh, especially in the diaspora of the, of the quote unquote revolution, you know, mm-hmm. that there, that, that, that obviously doesn't just happen in Sweden. That's yeah. the product of so much work being done by, on the ground there in the in the parliament uh, mm-hmm. by people lobbying to make sure this happens um, some of the Swedish MPs we've had Azadeh uh, Rojan was part of that yes. she was on the show last month who've been working hard at this um, it it's it makes a big difference and it makes a, a big statement and thank you Sweden yeah exactly for taking that step now if we could only get the UN to also start uh, making the Didn't right the UN decisions. Well, some, that's exactly yeah, yeah. where I was leading. Yeah, so. I thought we were ending on a uh, the roundup on a positive I was note, going yeah. to, but All then, right, you know, yeah. I forgot that we, we didn't talk about this and I was just so taken aback by this. I, I can't not bring it up. The The UN um, just announced that the Islamic Republic was appointed as the chair of the UN Human Rights Council Social Forum, what? which is, it just boggles my yeah. mind. So this year, the theme is going to be technology and promotion of human rights. And someone (laughs) somewhere decided that the person or the country that would be most naturally fitting for this role would be the Islamic Republic of Iran, who is currently on a killing spree executing its people. Yeah. I mean, I just thought this was a joke, a sick joke. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a, yeah, 
one wants to laugh and one wants to cry. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Pega. Thank you. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, uh, Instagram, CastBox. If you want to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube. If you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins. By the way, if you want to see the full um, full interview with Satine, who is in our mm-hmm. studio on, on Monday, it's up on YouTube right now. Yes. Uh, if you're in Toronto... Ottawa or Montreal, you can catch Satine in the next few days, actually. I think her show in Toronto is tomorrow night. Um, but uh, the full interview, her first major interview, I like to call it a major interview, her first long-form interview in English, uh, was in our studio earlier this week, and it is available now in its entirety on YouTube at our Rook Media channel. If you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. And if you would like to support us, which we would really appreciate, you go to our website, rookmedia.com, press the support us button. It takes you to our Patreon page, or you can just go to Patreon if you're familiar with it, patreon.com slash rookmedia. Uh, to become a Rook member, it's a few dollars a month to become one of our our subscribers who make you a, a Rook member, and it goes to supporting what we do, and we really appreciate that, right? Yes, we do. All right. Let's get to our first guest. She is walking into the studio. Thank you again, Pega. Thank you. In there has been no shortage of loss for Iranians and the Iranian community in recent years, and particularly in recent months. And with loss comes grieving. But how do we recognize the process of grieving and work our way through it to recovery? My first guest today is an Iranian-Canadian grief recovery specialist based in Toronto, Mitra Mohammadzadeh, is a member of the Ontario Association of Mental Health Professionals and the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. She is the founder of Growth Center Employment Programs and Coaching Services and the Academy of Change, where she helps newcomers and refugees to deal with the difficulties they're facing in a new country. Mitra was born and raised in Iran, she moved to Malaysia to pursue her studies in human resources development and obtained her PhD there. She emigrated to Canada in 2011, first to Vancouver, then to here in Toronto, and right now. Mitra Mohammadzadeh joins me in the Rook studio. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm impressed with such a <laughs> with your resume. Yeah, I love it. Thank <laughs> what you a pleasure so much. it is to have you here. Thank you for doing this. It's my honor to be here. Appreciate your effort, time to support community. Thank you. You know, I want to ask you about grieving today. You know that um, how we should deal with it, how we can collectively empower ourselves through grief recovery. But first, I thought I would say, you know, you you self-define as a strong, independent Kurdish woman. Uh, it's no secret that the Kurdish population of Iran have been on the front lines of the uprising against this Islamic Republic regime since last September and the killing of Masa Jina uh, Amini, also a Kurdish Iranian woman. Tell me about the resilience you've witnessed amongst the Kurdish people of Iran. In one word or one sentence, because it's a lot, the most that I love to say to congratulate them to be this much tough Hmm. and never give up. Since we are kids, we see, for example, for myself, always my dad was telling me, you are a wild horse. And wild horse never train, you know. 
that characteristics of wild horse in me and all Kurdish people I can tell with the mountain and the geography situation that we are grow, it makes us to be more resilient and always stay strong on mm-hmm. our belief and values to never give up. And if it's a, if it may be a surprise to some of us to see that kind of resilience month after month, year after year, it's probably not a surprise to you. No, always. I said to my Kurdish community, Persian, all uh, regardless of the gender, nation, age, but here we are talking about this specific behavior characteristic. I always say to them, it's the reality. It's like it's within our body mm-hmm. and we have hope. Mm-hmm. And even we don't give up. We know this part of time we need to recover. Let me ask, make it a little bit more personal if I can, Mitra John, which is, uh, I know, for example, you used to have long hair. And one of the reasons you cut it was in solidarity with Masa and, and with the women of Iran. Uh, tell me how you have processed the events of the last eight months in Iran. It's been a lot because two months before this beautiful, amazing, I call it amazing happened. I know we lost, but for me, the world knows who is Iran. Mm. That's why I call it an extraordinary event. Wow, you you see it as positive. Yes. Even though the revolution is clearly not complete. Yes. Uh, interesting. Because imagine Jianjian. No one didn't know where is Iran. Mm. Even no one didn't know. Our song, Suruj, our um, Nauruz, people celebrated with our pain and sorrow. And every single person in the world now, they know yes. where is Iran. Even they hadn't had an idea. Always, I, you know that I'm a big <laughs> networker and I love people. Always I ask people, when they ask me, where are you from? I said, Kurdish, tiny part of Iran. They say, where? Iraq? <laughs> yeah. Where? Uh, are yeah. you Middle East? I know all of us won, but even though that's why I call it an extraordinary event because people know in that part of the world. And even if they did know something about Iran before, they really know now, we would hope, that the people of Iran and the Iranians around the world are not the same as the government or regime of Iran. As you know, I went to Iran after 15 years and I had hoped to give my knowledge, my love to cross Iran, all poverty areas of Iran about the grief. And the second year that I went and I had a thousand of uh, publish of the grief recovery steps, the first night they, I dealt with those interviews, canceled all my seminars. It's very long story, but short. I got to Tehran with force because I had to go at a lot, a spa in Iran for an interview the same day that was um, during Khomeini's anniversary. So yeah. I ran away. 
So you were that was still in your blood as you're, you had to basically just escape Iran again, and then it, all of this is, is happening. I mean, you say it's been a, I, I understand, and actually I, I love the idea of seeing this as a positive in terms of the message it sent, and I, to, I say it as the goalposts have moved. You know, the, the work that's been done in the last eight months, you can't roll it all back as hard as the regime will try. But it also has been a time of great loss, and you... Um, you're someone who I'm going to start asking you about grieving, but you're someone who clearly feels that when I've met you before, you seem like someone who um, has practiced that feeling uh, the emotions of others. And so even from afar, as you're watching what's going on in Iran, it must be, a, as it has been for all of us, a difficult eight months too, yes? A lot. Even I feel it with every single of my cells neurons of my brain, the pain and the amount of pain. So imagine I was a grief specialist. Other people are not and they don't have these skills. Even with these incredible skills, I was falling apart. My family went through a lot. My students, my team was falling apart. They went to the interviews. I lost the entire of seven years. And my website, my every single things. And the most painful was labeled me, you are a American spa. They labeled me, you teach Erfan Nozuhur, which is very weird label. Mm. I was teaching them increasing self-awareness to mm. be happy. However, with those amount of loss, for me, when Maso happened, I saw the light. I said, enough is enough. It's a great start for you, Mitra. I stand up. Mm. And I said, it's a time to give our voice to the world. 85 million of people over there are grieving with lots of things. Mm. It's not only one things or the rate of uh, poverty, mm-hmm. inflammation. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know, Mr. John, also, I mean, you, you, as you say, you're a grief re- recovery specialist. You, you practice this, you teach this stuff, uh, you coach this stuff. For, for those of us who are not, I think we underestimate maybe how messed up we all are because uh, you, you, you may know Solmaz Barkir. She was here last week. And Solmaz was saying, we were talking about the, you know, the lack of unity and the, all the, the way this opposition leader thing has just dissolved into some weirdness. And she was saying, you know, we have to understand and respect the level of frustration and anger that comes with not just everything that happened in terms of kids dying and all the tragedy and all that, but the expectations that were there for a little bit, entirely unrealistic, let's say, and maybe in in retrospect, but the expectations that in two or three months this is going to be done and the regime will be gone and there's going to be freedom in Iran. And, and, and when that doesn't get realized and when seven or eight months later we realize, well, actually, this is going to take a long time and this is going to be a step-by-step process and there's going to be a lot more pain and heartache before anything happens, people are not taking that well because it, it's a great 
it's emotionally, psychologically a lot to deal with, right? Yes, a lot. And I like to add another point to this. In my experience and my expertise as a HR point of view, the biggest loss even we, we, we will facing a, the huge, I visualize it, the huge loss in Iran about human development. Hmm. We don't have, they don't train to respect, to not discriminate, to not point at each other. The huge loss is that they don't have even leader to follow. That's why another loss is self-leading. Yes. People are not even able to manage their emotion and their thoughts. Yes. And always is a conflict emotion everywhere. True, yes. You wanted to, by the way, I should. I didn't do this off the top. You wanted me to mention, because uh, you're generously doing this interview in English. Most of the, a lot of the work you do is in yes. Persian. Oh, ninety nine percent. Hanavik, a lot of it. You, 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 you wanted me to mention that. Uh, first of all, I don't think it needs any mention. I think your English is great, Thank and you. you're very eloquent. But, but you wanted me to mention that, in fact. You only started speaking English in your in your forties, right? Yeah, forty two when I came Canada. From forty two to forty five, I was lost <laughs> at middle right. of nowhere. I couldn't barely even speak a word of English. I was an ESL student, and they said to me, "Fill up the form to level." I said. I don't have anything. Right. Then he said, okay, you know how and buy? I said, yes. And then asked me to write. Still, it's a joke for me that I didn't know buy is a B-Y-E. <laughs> how did you spell buy? <laughs> I didn't know oh, that. Oh, you didn't know how. To, did you spell it some other way? Yeah. B-Y-E-B-U-I? No, like, B and I. Oh, B- <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that also exists, like, uh, you know, bisexual, maybe. Bi- uh, 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 well, anyway, yes, here you are doing you. an interview in English. I appreciate uh, it. So, so one of the things you do I- in your work is to work with people who are grieving. And the goal is, as I understand it, grief recovery. You do grief coaching. So um, on your site, you say, for example, say, you have to let go and move on, but they don't say how. How do you do this? The grief recovery method teaches you how to regain your balance back. So so very briefly, first of all, just to set the scene, what does grief recovery mean? Mm-hmm. First of all, grief. What is grief? It's the result of pain and sorrow. Every single one experienced the death of beloved. The society has taught us just we grieving since we have we are dealing with the loss of beloved or divorce or broken relationship and never talk anymore about it for other staff to this specific technique we said grief is a normal reaction our body has a reaction to any change mm. no in Iran is a revolution. Our body shows reaction to this change, the amount of change. So 
back to the technique, I'm a, a, an advanced specialist and trainer and train people to be facilitator grief mm-hmm, coach mm-hmm. in our academy. We have 40 types of grief that we are dealing per day and we are not aware of it. Hmm. When you use the word recovery, it suggests that there's another option. In other words, if you don't do the right work, if you don't engage in the recovery, is it possible that you live with the grief, the pain forever? Yes, it's with us. My job is to normalize it. Hmm. In Farsi, we say that qareeb, a stranger. No one pay attention to this amazing feeling always neglected. It comes to your life to talk about it. Let me to tell you how it works sure. because it's a very heavy topic. I usually run a workshop two hours just to introduce the technique because every single one, one I am one of those mm-hmm. that always run away from the pain, sorrow, and talk about it. Always I was in a dark room, dark side, no talk about it, always and I then was is isolated. It, is it basically like it needs to, if you don't purge it out somehow, if it doesn't come out, it stays within you. It's oh, almost yeah. like a, yes. um, I've always, I've thought of, forgive me, I cut you off. I, I'll no, let no, you finish no, the story. But, no. but I've, th- I, I've sometimes thought about grieving. Maybe it's because I learned this from therapists. But mm-hmm. I, I think about grieving almost like a really, 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 really bad stomachache. Uh, or, or like a, and you, when you have something, you've eaten the wrong food, you have to purge the food out. You're not going to feel perfect afterwards. You may, may never feel perfect again. But it has to come out somehow. And if you don't do the grieving, then you're, I mean, and we hear about this, you know, you're, they, that, that person suppresses their emotions, they're living with grief. Uh, so, so you were saying, you, you, you spend the first couple of hours just introducing people to the idea of grief, and go ahead. Exactly, I like the way you said it, Jian John. Grief, it's a like invisible backpack. Hmm. Since we were kids, like a snowflake, the snowflake during time you said when you have an invisible pack a pack pack did i say that correctly backpack pack pack <laughs> since you we were kids we compared we judged mm. we analyzed oh as look at other people you just those little rock you put them in this invisible mm backpack and you are unknowingly carry it. I had one. When it's done, you can't carry it. That is the things you said give you a stomach ache. And for the snowflake in your life, all of a sudden I left this. The avalanche come. That little tiny snowflake. Carry the pain, uh-huh. carry the pain. It turns into an avalanche. What happens if you don't get rid of the invisible backpack? What does it do to you? To me, it's back uh, to 2018. How much my invisible backpack was heavy. You that were an immigrant. You had to leave your country. 
You had experienced personal loss? What um, a teenager son. With the family, I was the only Kurdish woman in entire my family that I had all those taboo by myself. Mm. Was not easy job. And you got into a series of car accidents, yeah. more than one. Well, yes, true, true. And so you're carrying all that. And first of all, I know you you end up working with specialists, grief specialists who help you get out of that. What would have happened to you if you hadn't got rid of that backpack? Exactly, with the all amazing dear friends of psychologists, therapists, counselors, life coaches. All with those, they were temporary help me with the medication I was taking. Xanax and citalopram for just to stand up and push myself for my daily work. But with those, the ending up was like all other people, like the dear, f- our youth that we had suicide just yesterday. Mm. Like all other amazing people that ending up with the suicide, I decided for the voluntary departure. It was very heavy for me. I was done, Jean. You were going to take your own life? I went to my, yes. Fancy way of the suicide. I'm sure you have heard about the departure voluntary. It was my job in the Ontario Society of Seniors to teach the families who have seniors that long they are in rehab, and they are above five years under the uh, in a coma, and it cost. Mm-hmm. My job was to train them uh, with the organization. I was trainer to help them to make them satisfied to help to euthanasia, take, euthanasia. take their lives. Yeah. yeah, that made me came to my mind. Okay, I can take euthanasia for myself. It's done. I'm, I'm, I'm. So even with all your uh-huh. background, human resources, PhD, yeah. and all of that, the and yeah, imagine I was top first Iranian that I got candidate for top seventy five um, successful immigrants in Canada. And when they called me, I said, "No, it's a wrong number. I'm not. I'm a simple woman. I'm just serving shelters and my." society immigrants mm. who can candidate mm. me and then i said oh no it's me even though with those all with academy of change were in, you in touch with your family in iran uh, those days uh, it was difficult time for me um, was somehow in my personal relationship my husband was not coming to us my own family I have a big family, <laughs> sibling, uh, yes, but you know, they call it Oberu in Iran. Yeah. It was a big deal for them. I was. Status and shame. Rejected. They were, yeah. yeah. And you have a famous brother. I mean, was he, were you, were you talking to Navid? Yes. Were you in touch with him? I mean, yes, I'm just thinking yes, yes, how yes, you. Yes, yes, you know, Navid, it's Omid, uh, Sarah, my sibling, my heart, my twin sister Minu, but you know, I was not this Mitra because those days I didn't know grief. Always I was cover myself with I'm fine. I never tell them what's going on in my life. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, I was going to ask you, um, th- this maybe this is a good segue. How good are we? How good are we? And I almost ask it in, <laughs> in an unfortunate, ironic way or a sarcastic way. How good are we in Iranian culture at grieving? Zero. Zero. And it's pain. Why, why are we so bad at that? Because they, ha- they haven't taught us. The society, we grow up with some belief system and with intellectual comment and religion comment. Uh, some, whenever some things happen, they say to us, oh, it was your destiny, you need to be patient, you need to be mm, strong, you need to be, give it a time, you need to replace your pain. Oh, you know what, God has better things for you to do. I got accident, they said, oh, thanks God you are alive. It's money is money because we always minimize the pain and showing with intellectual comment that it's okay. But the reality, intellectual comment is like a milk. If it expires, mm. would you drink it? No. No. Still, not only Iran, but also the entire of Middle East. It's and, a funny thing because low. I'm sure most of the people listening who are Iranian especially will understand what you're saying. And there's a suppression of emotion. There's a suppression of pain. Everybody tries to look like they're fine or, or put it. But on the other hand, we also have very melodramatic funerals. I mean, you know, where everybody's wailing, crying. And even I remember the juxtaposition growing up where I would go to a, a wedding of a sort of um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, um, I remember one of my friend's mothers had died and, and they were playing When the Saints Go Marching In and everybody was trying not to cry. And I thought, this is so fake. And on the other hand, at Iranian funerals, everybody was, if you're not crying and, you know, showing a lot of emotion, you're considered, what's wrong with this person? So we have that demonstration. Of show off. But that's not real? That's not proper grieving? It's yes and no. Okay. Because it's personal to me. To me, we have in Kurdish muye, we talk and, but we have a lot to cut off our hair. We uh-huh. do the dirt and water uh-huh. all above our uh-huh. shoulder, our head, still some places they do. As a behaviorist, a ritualized be- way yes. of yeah, yeah. I look at that because I do behavior a lot and uh-huh. way above beyond my expertise. I study and I write a lot of article about different cultures, behaviors, how to deal with and how to react and act. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from cultural background of each area. For example, as you see, for capital punishment in Kurdistan, we dance for it. Mm. In our family, I see very painful ritual because it's an opportunity for those people in my point of view 
to do grieving for themselves. Okay. And but that's good, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, because whenever you want to cry, they said don't cry. If you want to talk about your pain, oh, she's negative. If you want to, <laughs> who should I talk about my right. pain? Right. The grief bring more grief. And always some people stop you from express those feelings. Mm-hmm. And I was one of them, always buried my feeling. Whenever someone was dying, it was opportunity for me to get rid of all those cries. Mm-hmm. And as I see in society, every people do it. It's related with their own back. Mm-hmm. But in part of Tehran, for example, it's became very fancy in big cities. Mostly is like wedding show off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, me, we said more the parasti. Mm-hmm. When I'm alive, no one asks me, hey, Mitra, what are you doing? Yeah. Even though now. Yeah. I have to say in my own family, uh-huh. uh, my father died a few years ago. And. It's um, very unique. We didn't know pain. a lot. Oh, it's a terrible pain. pain. I still you know, feel it. Yeah. But we didn't we didn't know everything that he wanted when he died in terms of, you know, stupid things like I mean not stupid but just things like what's the casket and where exactly do, are we going to bury him and what is going and all of those decisions that you have to make and you're making at the at the, at the worst time, you know. And the reason was, and I compare this to some of my friends who are, say, many generations in Canada, who have sat down with their parents and said, okay, where do you like to get buried and what are you going to be? And in our family, it was all, nobody's going to die ever. You shouldn't say these things. And which is, of course, unrealistic. As people get older, we need to have these conversations. But it almost seemed rude to talk about, you know, to my dad about, well, what? So we never talked about it. So he then he dies. And, you know, my poor mom has to say, I, you know, and so we, you know, we're kind of have to guess what my father would even want in his death because our rituals are to not suppress that kind of talk. Don't talk about it, you know? Whereas, again, these other families have, at the age of 40, they've kind of gone, okay, well, this is the way you, the, dad, what, what do you want when you die? I mean, we don't have those kind of conversations, you know? Um, but I'm guessing even when you talk about the grieving at the funeral that Iranians are allowed, that's not the entire grieving process. You can't do it all in one, one day or one 40-day period. And so the grief recovery is um, steps. Steps. Recovery is this. We don't get rid of the events, the memories. We go step by step to recover, be better with what? Not forget the people. We go through the pain and sorrow of event, Mm. the way they called you, the way you were with your mom confused, Mm -hmm. the 40 type of loss, I felt it now, one of them, intangible loss, still you said he didn't know what he wanted. I wish I could ask them. 
intangible losses always are within us and always we bury them we have a fear and phobias mm. to talk about them it's when you talk about how Iranians are not good at grieving mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that's that's particularly a problematic because Iranians in general have had to deal with a lot of loss in recent yes. decades yes tell me about some of some of which you've experienced yourself. Yes. Tell me about the ways and reasons you have seen Iranians needing to grieve yes. in recent times, even if we yeah. don't do it properly. Yeah, it was in 2018, the year that I got to know these amazing tools. Then I went to the re- because I love research and articles, writing. I I love to write, and then I went through all this little details of statistic and I have found in 2020 Iran was the highest rank of the sadness countries Mm. even though before corona that was a huge even that is globally and then in Iran was the worst which that situation we always wonder why all of our famous songs are sad songs yes true and then the Gina and then uh, now before Gina the metropole the Abaddon the, uh, a lot we had yes. in the the I started with the crash of uh, 752 yes even before that Abaddon yes yes, uh, yes. Navid Akhari it just yes. it keeps going yeah. yes yes and then I researched and I thought oh my god that's why our people are not happy they said they are always blaming Kormizana. Mm. No, this country is something going on. And then I talk with my grandmaster uh, business coach and said, hey, Mitra, think I was killing myself to speak English and, um, and present these things all in English. Then when I recover, I said I need to translate this and give this gift to the world. But it, I should mention Farsi. that one of the things I've learned from from researching you, uh-huh. <laughs> I haven't. I, I, I mean, I have to take the courses, but I. Yeah. But is that grief? Uh, we're talking about grief a lot here mm-hmm. in terms okay. of the loss of life. Yes. But there is a, a part of all those forty dimensions of yes, grief that yes, you talk yes. about. That I mean, you you grieving comes from loss of freedom, yes. loss of culture, loss, loss of, of um, faith, trust confidence these are all safety. things safety yes so the, the, the there's a lot going on there for Iranians that yeah yeah all 40 types are in Iran and by COVID I said you know someone needs to help this country because I was one of them that I went through the stages of grief if you have heard for sure mm-hmm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross believed that she I love her to the moon with her daughter Elizabeth they have done a lot to the world but I not agree with the society they misconcept their theory they applied it to every single hmm. loss in reality they said yes there is a five stage first you deny then you get angry then you get bargaining then you get depressed Mm. then you have to accept but Jian 
when I got cancer, and as probably you know in my story, I'm a survivor of colon cancer with, the f- you know, the cancer. And I went with those stage perfectly. They worked for me yeah. because I had to accept. But it doesn't go with all these things going on in no, Iran. No, and when you to talk about... No. And when you talk about uh, us not having the tools mm-hmm. to be able to get rid of the invisible pack backpack, yes, exactly. you can, I guess, based on what you've been through and what you were just talking about in terms of where you were at five or six years ago, you can empathize um, with what we've been seeing, unfortunately, a lot in Iran. There's a lot of, these days we've seen a lot of suicides. Yes, And young, young Iranians taking their own lives. Talk to me about the kind of desperation young people are feeling inside yes. Iran that would leave, lead them to take their own life yes. and the lack of tools for grieving, as you yes, talk about, exactly. that leads to this. Yeah. The biggest is they are facing unmet hope, unmet dreams, unmet goals. They are all over place. They don't have, they lost the clarity what's going on in their future. These things are very heavy. Beside those things, they have lack of, no one respect them, lack of not being seen, not being heard. They compare, they, 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 la- they are sick of taking stirbs, short-term relieving energy behaviors. Mm. Because when you want to balance, when you lose, you replace that loss with any disorder in food, in disorder to your sleep pattern, disorder in sex, disorder in making balance, you do things to make yourself balance with drug, with things, these are very, with cutting themselves. Mm -hmm. I have been through last three months with 11, I helped them, they healed. And I'm one person. Everyone knows that I have a Gina, eight weeks program it took 12 weeks by all my heart for 120 people free Mm. and I do the best to introduce them this technique to bring it Mitra what what, to help other uh, to help our youth it's a big concert for me what are we seeing when we see and we saw this a few times in the fall, and I'm sure, unfortunately, very sadly, it's still happening, when there was the imprisonment of teenagers, and then when the teenagers would be released, so you would think, okay, they're back with their families, now they're gonna be fine, then they would take their own life. Exactly. What, What are we seeing there, what is that? Because the amount of their own loss is a lot, like, because I have lived this, that I went for my, by myself to my physician and asked for departure voluntary. When you get the, hit that point, you, these were my feeling. For sure when someone die, 
suicide and go for it. I said, oh my God. I felt that I'm done. I'm useless. I'm not enough. No one can understand who I am. I need to finish with my life even though my husband will understand who I was. Always that moment you are seeking to prove yourself after you die. Because you know when you die, it's everywhere. Oh, suicide is a big uh, happen. And it's not only that moment with that. And we don't know what's going on that inside. You took me back in 1998. I was a, a good standing A in Mahalat. And two of my best close friends, they reported me and they caught me. I was there two nights and I know how it could be inside. Also in 2000, they caught me in Shasabar and the way they treated us, oh my God. And I every time I release with bail and with money anyhow to pay my lashes yes. my husband did it but you know I still look my heart beating that's inside is dark the way they treated you no food with a dirty yeah. oh my god psychological tool psychological yeah. tool and you know you need to have a toughen muscle brain they don't have these skills it's like going to gym every single day we made the muscle right, right. but no one didn't right. taught us that our brain has muscle yeah we and how to, to toughen it how to to get 85 billion people yeah. living under the conditions in terms yes. of the lack of freedom and etc yes. uh to to all be on that uh, healthy page this this leads me i guess to to the crescendo of our conversation and the, the, the million dollar question, which is that, you know, m most people listening will be able to relate to. There are experiences of personal loss, the death of a family member, the breakup of a relationship, but then there are broader losses that collective we face as a community. Loss. Collective This loss. week, there were two more Iranian men executed, this time for having an opinion yes. about religion, for just the freedom to think Yes. that they're not allowed. How should we collectively yes. find a way to process that kind of loss? I strongly believe and urge everyone to stand up and advocate mental health for them. Advocate these tools to teach them. We need a team to go live and talk more and more I'm Mental health for who? For, for all of us. For all of us. In Farsi. In Iran now. My master grand coach, what he said to me, that it stayed with me forever. He said, why, Mitra, you are killing yourself to learn English? We have this in 20 countries mm. with 20 languages. You have 85 million Iranian. Who desperately need it, yeah. Even though those days was not even COVID, even though not right. this all going on. We need to 
ask people to advocate and train more people, train more facilitators to teach this tools. We are able to certify them. We are able to help them. Right now, at this moment I'm here, I have 12 grief coach that they are stand. I have in Sweden, Maryam, I have two, Sadaf and Sharzad in Alman for uh, Iranian uh, but community. I, but I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess mm. and assume that the, the government, the regime of Iran mm. doesn't help with mental health. No. <laughs> right. That doesn't surprise yeah. me somehow. Yeah. So, and another thing i like to add, yes. please, I invite all psychologists, therapists, counselors, coaches to add this technique unique as unique as fingerprint mm. like fingerprint and no one understand the feeling and emotion of each other and if we add this technique to their toolbox as i have two amazing psychologists right now beside me and two therapists i admire them sarah sadaf Beheshte. Milka is the youngest grief coach for me in Iran. That I was going to ask you, are there a lot of people doing your kind of work inside Iran now? Yes, yes, they're they all. are under me. They're under, under you? Yes, because but, I, mean, I train them. Well, you can't, I mean, but there needs to be a lot more than just people who work yes, with you. I mean, there's 80, 80 million people. Yeah, so. They are, each of them, in one part of Iran, 12 they are. And they do grief coaching. I mentor them to go steps exactly in a right path of the griefing. What can an individual do? What can somebody who's listening right now who wants to, I mean, other than take your courses, I guess, yeah. what, what, what can they, what's the first step to dealing with their own grief, but also to trying to help the Iranian cause for, you know, somehow dealing with this pain and trauma? I love the question that you asked. First step, I know facing pain and sorrow has a fear. First steps, be responsible to go through yourself, deep breathe and look at each single person. Listen, my body, how much I do react to any changes because every single hmm. change has a own reaction, own loss. What are my feeling and what are my steps, my short-term relieving energy behaviors? If Jean says to me, oh, Mitra, at my workplace, something's happened, I'm not feeling good, I don't offer you, as people do, oh, let's go to bar and a glass of wine will make you relax. No. When someone say I'm sad, say I'm here with heart, we are, you know, what I see the people, just like iceberg, just they see us a tip right, of it, right. 92%. Yes. yes. It's in my inside and say I'm fine we yeah. are not fine start don't say I'm fine I'm okay it's okay no it's not okay let's talk and validate we don't validate our anger mm. our pain our guilt 
we we just we are you know what I see the people just like iceberg just they see us a tip right, of it right. nine percent yes. yes it's in my inside and yeah. say I'm fine we yeah. are not fine start don't say I'm fine I'm okay it's okay no it's not okay let's talk we are there to really just sit and talk about our feeling mm. with partner with kids with work it's a well-being no phone these days we even text each other in one home i have a family of three they said we don't talk each other if i talk to husband just yelling my their kids are upstairs the kids said teenager says oh my mom is always in party or casino in somewhere with friends why because it's a star i don't label anyone i don't label anyone this is addiction no these are real sign mm. that we are dealing with loss within our, ourselves i'm so grateful for your Me time too. today and thank i'm you. i'm sure the uh, the audience is as well and i I thank you for the work you do. I thank you for sharing your wisdom with us and your compassion and your passion. And I hope you can do it again. Yes, sure. I'll, I will be there by all by means but because I love to give them specific steps. I'm sure now they know how to watch themselves, how they react with their thoughts and emotion, validate with their anger, give them rate from one to 10. I don't want to see him anymore, no. Little part, Bishkanimesh, mm. and then each single person has own steps. What are my steps? For me, I was workaholic. For me, it's in my channel, YouTube channel, 500 pair yep. of shoes. Yep. For what are yours? Just gathering and say, oh, I want to even please here. I don't please anyone because mm. it's one of the stairs. But in this case, is a very unique place. Write down, don't afraid. Just write down in a comment, what are your stairs? To break this wall of I'm fine. No one judge you. The beauty of these techniques and my community is we don't judge, we don't compare, we don't analyze each other. If something happened, I said, Jean, I, you know how much you are dear friend for me, but that behavior, you, that word you said, it hurt me. Mm. I want to talk to you about just only that. It's just those, amazing things, milestone that I'm sure they will stay forever with them for those that want to work. You know, if you them. keep talking, I'm going to keep you here for five <laughs> yes. hours. It's yes. too good. I need to bring you back and talk about these things. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Merci. Merci. It's a um, blessing for me 
to be here and we are going to finish it by a memory that when I was HR clerk in 2014 mm-hmm. in city of toronto Mm -hmm. john 55 always i was walking and i was saying oh one iranian it's in cv (laughs) so one day god i will be there and i'm so thankful that today i'm here and be a guest in your amazing studio and you're very kind merci john thank you so much thank you appreciate it This is Rook, episode 263, Grief and Recovery. Remember, for all things Rook-related, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, where we have a new Rook the Experts interview, a full video of it, with uh, Master Badri, uh, the Taekwondo master. That's at rookmedia.com. My next guest today is an Iranian-Canadian rapper and soccer player who has a remarkable and inspiring story of resilience, overcoming the odds to fight for his life and his passions. Take a listen to this. Should be evident the flow is to heaven sent the music is the medicine you feeling like you got it huh go ahead and tell them that there you go. A little taste of a track called Heavenly. That is the opening song and the title track from a new album of the same name by my guest here in the Rook studio, Ty Moz Bagboni. Ty Moz was born and raised in the Toronto area. He was a talented young soccer player who was on his way to a professional career in soccer, but health challenges were to prevent the realization of those dreams. Ty Moz was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of 11 and has, quite frankly, a few times been told that He had only a few months to live. Now, after beating cancer three times and surviving different health issues, Time Oz has turned his passion for music and using rap lyrics to draw attention to cancer and to be an inspiration for others, which he is. He is an ambassador for Sick Kids Hospital here in Canada. And right now, Time Oz Bakboni joins me in the Rook studio. Hello, sir. Hey, thank you for having me. Nice to have you here. We have a bit of history. I've known about your story for a long time. No, for sure. I remember when I was a kid, you should come to the events. Like, it was a lot. Thank you for your help back then as well. Time Oz the Warrior. (laughs) Let's go. That's you. That's you. And and by the way, Time Oz is, uh, I was actually asking the crew here whether that's a Persian name, but, and they were kind of saying, we don't know a lot of Time Oz. It's Turkish, right? Yeah, it's Maturke. It's a Turkish name. uh, Time Oz literally means Bihamta, unique, unique warrior. And, 
It's, I couldn't think of a more fitting name for myself. That's why I kept it for my it, artist it name. It really as well. does sound like it's your rap name. Yeah. Like your name is like Fashid or something. <laughs> <laughs> and you went with Time Oz for yeah. your, your rap name. Um, tell me about that song, Heavenly. Heavenly is like, it's probably uh, my favorite song on the album, personally. That's why I named the album after it too. I made it. And it's like, uh, it just puts me in a good mood. I feel like it can put anybody in a good mood. It, I'm talking about my story, but the way I'm like floating and scheming over the beat, it's um, I think I'm just it's a really great song and it shares my story. I think the best. It, it quite literally is your story, and if you didn't have that as your title track, I would almost feel reticent about you know bringing you on here and asking about your story because I, it's something that defines you to a certain extent, but it also doesn't define you. You are not only your your health issues. Are you comfortable talking about what you've been through? Yeah, for sure. I'm always open uh, with what I've been through because I know that uh, a lot of other people are dealing with it. Like cancer is a universal thing. doesn't matter what age you are, what religion you are, what race you are. It affects everyone. And I feel like if I share my story, I know I have a positive impact and I can give hope to other people that are fighting through it right now. Yeah, yeah, and you are an inspiration. I mean, you're this kid who was a very a talented soccer player from a very young age. You first get diagnosed with leukemia at age 11, right? Yeah. How does that happen? What happens to you? How do, how do you even find out you have leukemia? So, um, yeah, like since the age of five, I played in the highest levels of Canada with all the top teams. So uh, always a very athletic kid, perfect shape. And then um, one day, just like my mom noticed, like Mother's Instincts, like at the, like a physical training session, I'm just not running as fast as I was as before. And then uh, it took me to a doctor. They said, oh, my lower, like family doctor, my iron's a little bit low, typical stuff. But then went for a blood test. And uh, I was actually, sorry, I was getting like some bruises on my body as well. That was like uh, when you have low platelets. So I went for a blood test at Sickest Hospital. Basically, I had like no cells and I was like my, in my whole body and I was like training. Even if I did like a header, I could have got like internal bleeding like from that. And then they straight away, like within one week, diagnosed. I mean, that's a lot for an 11 year old to process, let alone anybody in, in their life. How, what was your I mean, the story has become this one of resilience. But what was your initial reaction as a kid when you hear this news? Um, at the age of 11, you don't have too much of a real, you just hear like cancer, just like a word, you know, it's uh, something people, a lot of people hear, but, um, me at that age, to be honest, like the only thing I, my thoughts was soccer, get back on the field. Yeah. This is just taking it away from that. Just soccer, really. So you beat it. You do chemotherapy. You, your, your cancer goes into remission. Mm -hmm. You're such a good player that you end up, um, by the age of 14, you're in Spain, um, working with a junior, like a, a, a team, like basically you're on track for a professional mm -hmm. career, right? And yeah. then the cancer returns. Tell me about that. No, actually even that was uh, after the second time okay. I, I moved to Spain. So. Oh, is that the, that's right. You've been through cancer twice and you go to Spain, right? Yeah. Okay. And a transplant. Ten months after my first bone marrow transplant and second battle with leukemia, I moved alone at 15 to Malaga, Spain. I was on trials with clubs there. And then only like a month and a half in there, I relapsed again. First of all, how is that even possible that you... <laughs> that you beat cancer twice and that you can go and play with the Malaga team. That's even like here, I would get chemo and I would go to training sessions. Like and I would even sometimes I wouldn't tell coaches what's going on and like, cause I don't want people to like treat me differently or like, like, Oh, you know, go a little easier and stuff. Like I always put myself out there and like, I'm technically I'm good, man. <laughs> I was a good player. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, I, I have a great passion for football, for soccer. Uh, I live and die by Arsenal, yeah, by the I way. Saw that yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't say anything about it. If, if you're a Man U fan, don't tell me. Okay. Uh, 
No, I like. I, oh, okay. I'm You're, a Barca fan, but Ar- Arsenal is my Premier League team. Oh, okay. All right. See, we're going to get along yeah, just yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's right. Tierra. Uh, I mean, soccer is something that Persians are very passionate about in general. How, if you can tell us, I mean, without any modesty or taught off, just go ahead. How good were you at your best? Basically, all these guys on Team Canada right now, we we played on the same. You teams. Train with them yeah, when you were the a kid. Same, yeah, the same camps, like all of them, like on TFC. Cast them how good I was, you know. I was out here, and now I'm, I'm a number nine. That's why I'm like time was nine. It's like Golzan, you know, like, and you could just see by my character, like it's the same thing. I express myself, like I feel like um, nobody's going wanted as much as me. I love soccer. That's it. Just me and a ball in a park six hours a day. Anybody that's loves something that much is gonna be very good at it. So now you're in Spain. You're 14 years old. You figure you've actually, you know, you've beaten this twice. Now, and you really are on track. It's not a pipe dream. You're good enough to be uh, to be playing in the Premier League or whatever eventually. Um, what happened at that point when you hear the, about this diagnosis the third time? Uh, my first thought, I promise, wasn't I'm going to die or I'm going to like something like that. It's, I can't be a soccer player anymore because now I'm like 16. Another battle, like my body's been through like too much. Like to be soccer, you have to be like not just good. You have to be like elite athlete. Like yeah. there's levels to it. And yeah. like... I just knew at that point, like, it was like, it was, that's what crushed me. I was like, I'm in Spain, I'm about to in trials with all these things, and now I got to go straight from there to Sickest Hospital and do another. And I, I just even think about, I mean, it really breaks my heart, man. That, that, I mean, I love that I'm sitting here with you. You look great now. Yeah, but, but just the idea of you in your mid-teens with all your talent having to get, get on a plane and come back here, yeah. the level of frustration that you must have felt the the level of heartbreak at knowing as you say at that point that you have to give up your dreams not only that but i mean doctors at that point are saying this is a death sentence right 100 percent. they didn't even want to give me treatment they were just saying it's going to do more harm than good me and my mom had to go to the boards then like fight for it wow yeah i was given six months eight years ago really yeah so they so, so a doctor actually said it's not worth doing yeah, it? they just thought they don't do that. They, they thought it would do more harm than good because the body has already done one transplant. I've been through chemo twice. They're like, what else are we going to do? We already tried everything. And then like, you should just enjoy your time. Why would you want to spend like, your last time getting the most hardest treatments and like Holy killing shit. your body? And we just refuse to accept it. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you about your resilience, and that's kind of the theme of this uh, interview, obviously. But we have to talk about your mom because we know Persian moms are tough. Mm-hmm. But your mom, and you've talked about your mom's advocacy, tireless activism for you. T- tell us a bit about her and what she has done for you. Yeah, she's the strongest person I know in the world, to be honest. like, There's no chance of any of me being here looking like this, making music right now if it wasn't for her. We're both, we're like, we're, we're a team. When we're together, nothing can beat us. Yeah, and she she was the one who spearheaded campaigns for you know bone marrow, oh. re, all all of that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel like uh, you probably got familiar at that time when yes. I was looking for the first um, uh, bone marrow transplant. Uh, my father was helping as well. They raised had over a hundred thousand people join the job uh, bank, and most of them were also Iranians because for a bone marrow match, it yeah. has to be it's better for the same community. Yeah. So that's how I feel like you. And got, by the way, it's 
it's amazing that you found that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a, a sad story of a, a doctor who I had interviewed a couple of times on this show who died last year because he couldn't find yeah. the stem cell, the, the, the bone marrow that he needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's very hard because there is, there's actually, there's no directory in Iran. So it's a kind of a lottery, right, to find the right bone marrow. Yeah, and that's why I encourage anybody watching this right now. It's just a simple mouth swab. That's it. You could save somebody's life. Yeah. And it's not a surgery to do it. It's like uh, you go do it in. Literally, you're saving. I'm here today because somebody did that. It's always the thing, you know, when people say race doesn't matter, you know, like uh, we're, it's one world, everybody's, you know, what's the difference? Between, you know, that this is where race actually does matter. Yeah. The, 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 the fact of the matter is our, stel, our, our cells, if I have this correctly, are more likely going to be found amongst Iranians by a long shot than, in, than amongst any other uh, group, right? But that's because that's our lineage? Yes, our lineage, our bloodline, our DNA. You know, that's why even all with the things I have, the physical things that happened to me later on was because the match wasn't as close as possible. Right, right. Just uh, before I leave the topic of your mom, just tell me the kind of, when you say we're a team, so you're you're sitting somewhere and a doctor is coming. I mean, I, I, mean, I was reading that doctors were telling you, for example, that you're even beyond the death sentence, they were saying, uh, which is bad, about as bad as it gets, but they were saying you're never going to walk again, for example. Mm-hmm. What are the kind of conversations that you and your mom would, would have? She just, my mom made a promise to me. She's like, Thomas, I brought you here. You're going to walk out of this hospital, you know? And she kept her promise for me. And just conversation, she's like, this happened. It's just, she believes in me and she gave me my strength. And she just made promises to me and she kept her promise. She kept her word. Wow. And I'm guessing that you probably played that role for her at times, right? Yeah, I hope. But, like, I'd be honest, my mom is strong, you know? She doesn't even know what. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, the story is that during COVID was actually when you stopped needing a wheelchair, which is kind of ironic. Everybody else is fleeing this illness, and you're suddenly yeah. freeing yourself. What? Tell me about the moment when you when you begin to be able to walk again. Yeah, so I, even I say um, I spent six years in isolation, going through everything and uh, fighting so hard to get back to regular life. And right when I got back to regular life, the world goes into isolation, <laughs> you know? So like 2022 is the summer, I got my life back. And then uh, I've been walking two years, driving, doing everything, regular man, you know, out here trying to get it. And then, um, yeah, so it was it was a process, right? Everything is a process. I went from, people go from like crawling to walking to running. I went from crawling to walking to running to wheelchair to walker to cane to walking to running. You know, it's like a, it's a different path. And then I just always knew, like I always knew I was going to do it. And I just had to keep going at See, it. Okay, that's what I got to ask you about. And I don't, I don't even know if you know how to put this into words. But your resilience, um, look, there's, there's a choice when we face these great crises in life. It's uh, succumb or surmount you succumb and you give up and you say okay well i'm going to be sick i'm going to i'm going to resort to alcohol or i'm going to you know escape somehow or i'm going to uh um or i'm going to take my own life or you surmount you say no i'm going to you you were so heavily on the surmount side and i mean doctors all the way if you if from you know the reports that have been done on you uh, one thing doctors have been getting right is that they say that you've beaten these three bouts of cancer and other health issues because of your drive to get better. In other words, there's there's only so so much the medicine can do. Mm-hmm. The person themselves needs to be pushing hard to tell me where that strength comes from in you. 
it's just you know how you, exactly like how you were saying there's fight or flight i feel like all my cells are exactly like me it's just fight there's no flight and then um the strength just uh comes from because i just believe in myself i knew like i'm confident in like my talent like that's how i can say it try to be humble but like i just know i'm destined for a lot and like that wasn't the path for me like well, my life wasn't to be in a wheelchair to be in a bed sick my whole life I'm like, I got a lot to offer and I'm out here and I'm going to do it. So all that time when you are sitting in the bed, that isolation you just talked about, you're telling me there were no moments in there where you, where you, you were just like, I, the, f- fuck this. I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't fight anymore. What is that going to solve? Right? Like, um, yeah, for sure. You well, have nothing, good but yeah. it would be understandable. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, you have good days, you have bad days. It's just, you got to keep going. That's it. It's mm. just keep going. It's like. Even in the line in Heavenly, when I rap, it's like, uh, you, can ne- you can't lose if you never give up, right? So, like, you just keep going. It's like anything is like pressure, right? You're going to apply the pressure or the pressure applies on you. And if you keep applying pressure, something's got to give eventually, right? It's either it's gonna, you're going to give or what you're trying to get is going to give. Good for you, man. Well, tell me about the lowest point. If I say what was, what was the absolute lowest? Was it when you were eleven? Was it coming back from Malaga? Was it, was it which diagnosis? I mean, when did you really kind of for you hit rock bottom? That was um, it was say it's not even the cancer like it's the, the what the transplant did. It was the wheelchair. It was the losing my independence. It was losing my range of mobility. It was being in the bed just like. How did I go from being a professional soccer player in Spain to not even be able to go to the, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's, that's just like in your bed, you just you have those thoughts, and then it's just like, all right, like this is just my story, and it's like when I do this, then they're going to know, you know? Do you have, um, do some form of self talk or some, some way of getting yourself out of moments when you feel really frustrated? Yeah, I'm always in my head. Like, um, that's even with lyrics and what I write, the music is like, it's expressing myself is how I'm feeling and like put it out there and yeah I give myself a look in the mirror I'm Thomas the warrior like this is nothing for me anytime I come in here even before this interview hype myself up you know it's just you have to be like that you gotta be you gotta cheer for yourself you gotta do it all for yourself you know now you're a kid of the diaspora like me you grew up born and raised outside of Iran but I think most of your family is in Iran right yeah Uh, do they know about I mean uh, anybody associated with you should be incredibly proud of your story. Uh, has this rippled uh, to, to, I mean, I know there's people listening right now in Iran, but how much do you know about people knowing of your story who are inside Iran? Yeah, um, I get a lot of people from Iran, they, um, they show love because it's like you just connect with different people because you can feel, oh, this person is out here and he's doing this and he's from the same place as me. It's different. Like uh, Persians, you know, connect with Persians is just different. Uh, I've done uh, like Manito. I just did that recently. I've done, even when I was like doing my bone marrow transplant times things, they were like sh- helping me a lot. I was on Navad. They shared me. So I've been like uh, in there and then um, I guess they're just like, wow, this guy really came out of it and like, Look at him now, like the, with the kid that we were trying to help with bone marrow transplants and all this. Was out here. I mean, to look at you and hear, hear, you know, you rap and stuff, you seem like a urban Canadian Toronto uh, rapper, uh, hipster kid. Uh, how Iruni are you at home? Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> even me and my dad, you know, he still is English not the best. We got to talk in Persian. So. Oh, really? Yeah. You talk in Persian at home? Oh, for sure, yeah. My mom is good, but like, yeah, my dad is different. And then like, well, yeah, I'm like I was in Richmond Hill, North York. A lot of Persians here too. It's like it's different soccer. 
World Cup time when there's no, when there's no, uh, uh, you know, there's no uh, controversy around politics. Who are you, Team Melly or Team Canada? Uh, I like both. Uh, for sure, growing up, it was Team Melly because you know Canada when we were kids, we looked at it like a joke. To be honest, yeah. all the ballers yeah. in the city. Now it's like a different now. The kids yeah. growing up are like, whoa, they, their dream is to play for Team Canada. And that's like a big thing for this team. So it's a historic team that they just did in the World Cup. But yeah, like I like Iran because they love soccer and I love, you know, so I can feel the passion in there. It's like, so uh, yeah, it's Team Milli. It's funny enough, you probably, had you become a professional soccer player, you probably would have, you could have actually played maybe for Team Melly or Team Canada, right? Yeah, that was the thing for Team Milli because I know of like, if you do something for Tim Millie, like you win the World Cup, you win something for them, you're going to be a king, you know, for, <laughs> and they're going to love you. <laughs> Your aunt will love it. Tell me about the passion for music and rap. You say you're obsessed by it. What what has music given you? Music is just uh, another chance to compete, you know? So, like, that's me. It's just I'm a very competitive person, and it's like now I can't really do sports like that. It's, it's like on a, on a fair level. Music actually is like even playing field. Now it's like Mike, it's like doesn't matter your healthy body. It's like... Who, what are you saying, you know? What have you been through? What are you, what's your message? What music? So that's why I love it. And I can press myself and I can compete. Did you know you were a good rapper? Like when did this, uh, I mean, because you, you, you seem like to listen to you. It sounds like you've been doing it for years. I know you, you're a fan of Drake, and but I mean, when, when did that begin for you? Yeah, so like I always had a lot of, like I feel like talents I didn't like tap into just because soccer was just soccer. It was everything was soccer until I was like 16, 17. And then, um, First, uh, I got into battle rap while I was in the hospital. I was watching like that, cause and then I just got fascinated. I like battle rap is what? That's when two people are like no freestyling beats, no, against each yeah, other. No or? beat, no nothing. It's just straight lyrics. Like who uh-huh. can have the best lyrics, uh-huh. and that's how you like win the the battle. And growing up, you know, like for, for like a, I would write a little poem maybe like something like that. I would have it, but I just never really tapped into that side until I had the time. And then I got into battle rap. Got obsessed with lyrics. I got into that. Um, and then like. I was like, I can actually write, so let me try music, and then made music, and now we're doing it. I was going to ask you what it means to be an ambassador for Sick Kids. So yeah, that's something I always, from the beginning, I knew I would do it because they did so much for me. So I'm working right now with uh, Sick Kids Hospital and uh, Holland Blurview. It's the biggest children's rehab center in Canada. So basically, any kid with a disability. So when I was in a wheelchair, that's where I was doing a lot of my physiotherapy. I stayed there for six months, and I actually just did a. We were make, working on like a video game where for the apps where kids can work on their mobility. And like my section in mm. this, I'm, do, I'm teaching them how to move through rap. So they're going to learn a little bit of that in the lyrics. I just shot the uh, last week. And yeah, it's an ambassador because people go through a lot. And like it's, it's important for them to see that you can come out of it and make something positive of yourself. you got to, at this point, especially as an ambassador for sick kids, you got to be meeting kids who are you 10 years ago an 11 year old who's just been diagnosed with something or who is in the hospital what do you tell them this too shall pass you know it's like this is like just things happen can't explain why now maybe later on you will understand it's just you can't you can't give up and it's just it's a hard time but you know they give you that because you're a strong guy you can handle it you know you're gonna come out of it i promise just keep your head strong positive mindset you can accomplish anything. Before I let you go, I, I, I always feel like somebody like you must have so much wisdom because you, you're still in your early 20s, but you, you've just lived 
many lives. <laughs> you've, you've lived through a lot, uh, a lot more adversity in some cases. And by the way, as you get older, you realize that everybody has complex lives in different ways, right? But, but you've certainly had, had major challenges. What, what would you say you've learned about life and how to approach each day? Yeah, like every day you have a choice, you know? You can choose, I wanna have a good day or I wanna have a bad day. Everything is a consequence of choice. So, and a consequence of choice can be positive in the same way it can be negative. So if you make the choice to, I'm gonna start my day with a walk, get sunlight, do it, put myself in, listen to good music. You can make it and it's just, it, everything rolls, um, like rolls off that. So I feel like, yeah. That's such a, I, I really believe that as well, but it's hard to do. 100%. I believe everybody in the world has a choice every morning, you know, and I can, I could find anybody and give them 10 reasons why their life is amazing and 10, 10 reasons their life is shit and they have to choose and that's going to be their day. But it's hard sometimes when you get beaten down For sure. to, to make that choice to the positive choice. Yeah. Everything's perspective, right? Even with this interview, I feel like somebody will see this, be like, this kid went through that. What am I complaining about? Right. And then yeah. they're going to make their choice to change their thing and that's why it's important right inspiration comes from a lot of different avenues it's great to see you man thank you for doing this thank you for being the inspiration you are uh you you're a pillar of strength time oz the warrior i i love having you in the studio thanks for being here no thank you for having me it's time oz bagbani here in the rook studio thank you again this is full time for rook for today remember for all things rook related you can go to our website rookmedia.com where you can also become a Patreon member. Press the support us button. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anakita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Roham, Bearded Omid. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already on any or all of our platforms. And to watch the video versions of these interviews, go over to our YouTube channel, check us out on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. In the meantime, as ever, Mizun Bashi.